We come now to the preaching of God's word. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 11, and there's going to be a slight addition to the text that we're going to be reading this morning all the way to the end of chapter 11. As I studied this passage uh, this week, I had to get the bulletin out early this week because of the holiday. And as you study a passage, sometimes you realize you're stopping right in the middle of the story. And, you know, this is not a Netflix show. and We're not going to leave any cliffhangers here. So uh, we're going to make it all the way to the end of chapter 11. So if you turn with me to Judges chapter 11, we'll read verses 12 to the end of verse 40. Before we begin, let me pray and ask God's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you now and ask for your blessing upon this, that your Holy Spirit would work through the word that is preached and proclaimed. Lord, we do ask, as we sang already, that you would be the one who speaks. Lord, it is not my words, but it is you the sovereign God who speaks to your people through your scriptures as they are explained that brings light and understanding and salvation for our souls. And so, Lord, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable and pleasing in your sight this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Before I begin this text, I do want to give a brief review Uh, diving into Judges chapter 11. This is one of the more difficult sections in all of the Bible. Uh, The story that happens here is uh, troubled commentators and interpreters throughout the centuries. And I uh, stand as one who uh, has wrestled with this text alongside of them and uh, am humbled by it uh, because it is difficult. And so I don't stand here as one who can give you all of the answers and say that I know everything Uh, I rely upon many people who have worked hard in this passage, Uh, so we'll see that in just a moment. But I do want to give us a little context so that when we dive into this passage, we can understand where we are, Uh, thinking back to last week of who Jephthah is, and then I will read our text this morning. Because what happens in this uh, is Jephthah reviews a large portion of Israel's history. But who is this Jephthah character? We saw last week that he is a man who was raised up to be a judge, the leader of Gilead. Gilead is a region that is in uh, eastern Israel on the other side of the Jordan River. This is close to, to modern-day Jordan, uh, part, that region of the country, on the border of Israel and Jordan. And there, in that region, they have many different countries that surround them, the Edomites, the Moabites, the As we see, the Ammonites here and different countries who are are nations who are incurring into Israel and fighting against them. We saw that in chapter 10. And Gilead needs a new leader. There are people right in the middle of the thick of this. They're the last defense as you enter into Israel. And if Gilead falls, then the Ammonites have free access into the country of Israel to do as they please. So Jephthah is raised up by the people to be their leader to go fight against the Ammonites. So let's begin in verse 12. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, And to the Jordan. 
Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please, let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter into the territory of Moab, for Arnon was the border or the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through our, your land into our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and camped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited the country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon to the Jabbok, and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then, the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all the Lord, that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aor and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes from out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aor to the neighborhood of Mineth, twenty cities, as far as Abel-Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. 
Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done to me for me. Leave me alone two months, that I might go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Thus ends the reading of the word of the Lord to us this morning. May he bless it in our hearts. There are three three things I would like to look at in this passage, this story of incredible difficulty this morning. Several, two of them are Jephthah, the messages that he has for Ammon, and then Jephthah's vow to the Lord. And then lastly, I'd like to look at what does all this mean for you and I? What does this twisting, turning story of events have for you and I today? The first half of our text Jephthah reviews a significant portion of Israel's history. Jephthah is a cunning man. He's a very smart uh, warrior, as you can see. In in chapter 11, in the first part, in verses 4 through 11, we saw last week that Jephthah comes to power over the people of Gilead by this this disputation that he has with them. And he gets them to make a vow to him that they would install him as the leader, the ruler over them, the tribal lord, if you will. And now again, Jephthah used his cunning to try and sway this king of the Ammonites to give up his battle against them. And to do this, he reviews a significant portion of Israel's history to show this king of Ammon that he has no right to enter into this land. This does not belong to the king of Ammon. This does not belong to the Ammonites. It belongs to Israel. This is their land that they receive from the Lord. And he's trying to show the king of Ammon that he is guilty, that he is sinning against him by trying to come and take this land from them. And I'd like to just review this briefly of the things that he tries to show the king of Ammon. First, he tells him that he didn't take the land. This is not something that you took. This is something that the Lord has given to us. Second, He shows that the land never belonged to the Ammonites in the first place. It belonged to the Amorites. Now, the Amorites are a people group that lived right there at the the other side of the Jordan River. This was their land. The Ammonites were further east from that. But the Amorites, when Israel entered, was coming up into the land of Israel. They go around a, a longer route along the east side of the mountains out in the desert And they're going up this east side of the mountains, and they ask these different countries, moving south to north, Edom, Moab, the Amorites, and the Ammonites are up further north, and they ask each of these countries if they can pass through. And each of them say no, and then the Amorites, they take matters into their own hands, and they come and attack Israel. So Israel defeats them, and God gives them into their hand, and they they take over their land. And this is what Jephthah is saying. This is not your land. This is, you were never given this land. The Lord gave this land to to us. And then he turns and he says, this is not something that your God has even given to you. In verse 24, 
Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? Now, does Jephthah actually believe in this foreign God? We don't know. We know that the Israelites themselves have been pursuing after all the foreign gods, but whether or not Jephthah is actually saying, yes, your God is real and exists, it's not necessarily what he's doing here. He's more of saying for the sake of argument, here you go, you, your God will give to you whatever your God gives to you, and our God will give to us whatever he gives to us. But he tries to show them, your God has not given you this land. Fifth, Moab's land that you are trying to take, they couldn't take it from Israel. Moab, one of your neighbors to the south, they couldn't take this land for us. Balak, if many of you know the story of Balak and Balaam, Balak was the king of Moab who wanted to curse the Israelites so that they would not come in and take over land as they were moving north. And God defeated them. God used Balaam to say, no, I cannot curse Israel. And eventually Balak took matters into his own hands and God defeated Balak as well. Balak couldn't defeat them. The Amorites couldn't defeat them. What makes you think that you're going to do something better than they? And lastly, the Ammonites have had 300 years to take over this land. And they haven't. They haven't done anything. What gives? What now is the reason for you to come and attack us? He's heaping all of this up to say, you have no right to come in here to try and take this land from us. And you haven't cared at any point in the past, and it's not right for you to do this now. Then he uses this interesting phrase here at the end in verse 27. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. He calls upon the Lord to be the one who will decide this dispute. He is ultimately professing faith in the Lord. He is saying the Lord will be the one who will settle this dispute for us. And he's saying the one who gave us this land is also going to settle this dispute. This is a foregone conclusion for Jephthah. Not only is God going to decide this dispute, but he's going to decide it in our favor because he has already given us this land. He's not taking matters into his own hands. He's trusting himself over to the Lord. There's a couple fascinating things here. Jephthah is showing his political savviness. This is something that we would expect of kings. This is something that the book of Judges is trying to set us up for, is what is a king ought to look like? A king ought to be cautious and thoughtful about how he engages the foreign nations around him. He demonstrates his comprehensive understanding of Scripture. He shows that he knows Israel's history and he knows it well. Yet for all of his political savvy, what is Jephthah's underlying morality? What is the nature of this man? He understands politics. He understands how to engage in political war and battles. But is he a man who actually understands what really is right and what really is wrong? And does Jephthah take his biblical knowledge all all the way to its fullest extent? And that's what we're about to see in Jephthah's vow to the Lord. This is the next piece. Then, verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and on, passed on to Mizpah of Gilead and from Mizpah 
of, of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. He's further up north, and he's moving down to come engage in battle with these Ammonites, whom he says are fighting against him unjustly. Now, something that's interesting about the book of Judges is that these stories begin to mirror each other. Earlier stories are being mirrored in later stories. And if you remember earlier on, there was a story of the judge Ehud. He was the one who stabbed the very overweight king of Moab. And here we are in the same region, Moab, the Ammonites, and we have a similar situation. Both situations are you have foreign kings oppressing the Israelites for 18 years. And both deal with kings of Moab and the Ammonites. We see a reference here to Balak, the king of Moab. And this is what it says in chapter 3. And the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered himself, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. And if you read earlier in chapter 11 or chapter 10, it tells us that the Ammonites oppressed the Israelites, and especially Gilead, for 18 years. Something else that's interesting in the story of Ehud. He sends two messages to the king. He says, I have a message for you. I have a secret message for you. He does this twice. We also see Jephthah here sending messages twice to the king of Ammon. And something else that's fascinating that we will begin to see in this passage. Both have to do with an offering. Eglon, the king of Moab, his name means calf. And much of the description there has sacrificial language when he stabs this overweight king that many say is like the offering of a calf. And here we have in Judges chapter 11 an explicit use of sacrificial language, a whole burnt offering. But most importantly for our text this morning is a surprising result that happens when the doors are opened. In the, book of, in the story of Ehud, if you remember, the people of, of Eglon, as they're waiting for their king to come out after Ehud had snuck into this room and, and killed this foreign king, they don't know what's going on. Then suddenly when they open the door, they find their king dead on the other side of this door. There's this surprising result that happens on the other side. And here in this story, we see another mirror. The only time this word door occurs in the entire book of Judges is in the story of Ehud and here again in the story of Jephthah. And both climax with a situation of a surprising situation that happens on the other side of a door. But before we get too deep into this, it's important for us to see what's happening with the Spirit of the Lord and the placement of this vow. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah, was upon him. And then in the next scene, we see him leading Jephthah into battle to defeat his enemies. It is the shortest description of victory of all of the judges in this book. It's almost like a moot point in this text. As if to say, the important thing that happens here in this story is not the victory that Israel wins. It's a very small local regional battle that he wins, a small area, 20 cities. 
And it might disturb some of us, and it ought to disturb us. We might think, but the presence of the Spirit of the Lord, doesn't this mean he's doing what's righteous? Not necessarily. Think of David in his famous confession in Psalm 51. After he commits his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then murdering her husband, what does he say in that prayer? Take not your Holy Spirit from me. David understood that the Spirit of the Lord was present with him, but that did not prevent David from committing one of the grossest evils that has ever occurred in the nation of Israel. So the presence of the Spirit of the Lord does not override the sinfulness of human man in in their functions of carrying out their duties or failures to carry them out. But what we're expecting is a victory. But is that what we see? When the Spirit of the Lord comes, we see a victory, but is that ultimately what this text is pointing us to? And we see Jephthah's vow. It's an ambiguous vow. And the point is for us to see the foolishness of this vow. Did he really make this kind of vow? Whatever comes out of his door, he'll offer as a burnt offering. And we are now forced to reckon with the character of Jephthah. Yes, he is a savvy political leader, but does that may qualify him as the ultimate leader of Israel? Is he the one that will lead Israel? See, Jephthah is calculating everywhere, except when it comes to his core morality. He really is willing to sacrifice whatever will come through his door. Jephthah goes out, fights the battle, and then he comes back. And what comes out of the door? The surprising result, just like in Ehud. But it's a shocking scene. Unlike in the story of Ehud, where it is victory over the king, this is Jephthah's defeat. It is his undoing. It is one of the most, if not the most, astonishing situation that we see in this entire book of Judges. Coming through the door, as the text highlights for us, is his only daughter. And not only does it say it's his only daughter, it clarifies and emphasizes this by telling us that he has no other children. His line will end with this woman, with this daughter. And remember the story that we heard in last week about Jephthah, that he is seeking his inheritance, his siblings or his stepbrothers and sisters, they kick him out, disinherit him. And now he finally has a way to secure his inheritance, coming back into his homeland, being set as the ruler over his people. But his only source of preserving his inheritance, he is now foolishly and rashly vowed to the Lord as a sacrifice. Where we are expecting victory over enemies, coming through that door is a shocking sign of death one of the most shocking deaths in all of Scripture. It's so shocking that the Hebrew authors, who are no slouches when it comes to to depicting death, we see this all throughout the book of Judges, as they depict their victories over these foreign kings and armies, it is grotesque in many of their descriptions. But it can only gloss over what happens here. And he did with her according to the vow he made. And what does Jephthah do? Is he lamenting for his daughter? 
No, he blames her. He gets angry with her. He accuses her. Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. Jephthah is ultimately a selfish, self-centered man who is doing things only for his own benefit, laying the blame at the feet of his daughter. Is this the man who ought to lead Israel and its victories? The text is abundantly clear for us. Absolutely not. This is not what the ruler of Israel will be. He will not be like the Ammonites whose god Chemosh accepts child sacrifice. Here we see Jephthah behaving like the kingdoms of the nations around them that continually offer their children in sacrifice to them. Jephthah sought to secure himself, his inheritance, and in a single moment, it's taken away. In his vow, he thought he could control God, and he treated God just like the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of Moab. Whereas Ehud preserved the Israelite inheritance by executing Eglon, Jephthah's victory is none at all and brings an end to his own line, an end to his inheritance. It is the picture of the growing, dire situation in Israel, where early they start well, but it is growing worse and worse and worse. And in the center of this whole passage is a mighty statement, one that expresses faith, but then later expresses judgment. The Lord, the judge this day, decide between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. The question you and I must ask is, who are the people of Ammon here? Jephthah, an Israelite, is also mirroring mirroring the Ammonite people. And for his wicked vow, he is ultimately left without an inheritance. God allows his own vow to bring justice back on his own head. And the Lord does not intervene. The Lord takes no action here. And Jephthah is judged himself like an Ammonite king for his choice. So what does this mean for us today? Well, first of all, God is the judge. God is the judge. He is the judge of the Ammonites, these foreign nations around them. A kingdom that perpetuated unspeakable atrocities against its children and against the nations around them. God judges them through this mixed-up judge, Jephthah. They ignored the pleas to come to peace Cease your striving. God's justice will, all, will turn eventually on all those who turn away from the message of salvation. Jephthah is seeking peace. He's seeking to bring an end to this, but the Ammonites refuse, and God judges them for this. They meet their demise. But God is not only the judge of the Ammonites, he is the judge of Jephthah's daughter. What are we to make of this young woman? She's a virgin. She's probably 13 years old at this time. 
Well, we see four days of lament, or four years, two months of lament. This is an explicit disapproval on the part of the writer of Judges for the actions of Jephthah. This is to be lamented. This is not something to be celebrated or looked to to be mirrored. And her death warranted the greatest of laments. We hear of no other record in Scripture of this kind of lament being carried out by people annually for somebody. It became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah. This also shows the, the growing sadness of the situation we see in Israel. The view of women that happens in this book. From here on out, the treatment of women will take a decidedly negative turn. As a society declines and turns more and more to idolatry, so does their treatment of the most weakest and those vulnerable in their societies take a darker turn. We see this in our own culture today. As a society turns further from the knowledge that they do have of what God has shown them, as they turn from this, they will commit greater and greater evils. They will turn against the weakest, those who are vulnerable, those who need to be protected. The women are deprived of children instead of being preserved and protected. They are treated without respect to who they are. But what do we make of her tears? Her tears. They are tears of lament, but they are also tears of faith. She laments her virginity. Twice the text tells us this. What does this mean? 1 Timothy 2 tells us that ultimately the woman will be saved through childbearing. This does not mean that women earn salvation by giving birth to babies. It is an instruction of faith and hope that salvation would come to humanity through the giving birth of a child. She laments her virginity because she understands, as all the Israelite women do, that ultimately God would bring a Savior to the people of God through a woman giving birth. She is lamenting that this is the end of her line. Yet she is also lamenting because she knows salvation will come to the people. It just won't come through her. In the same moment of horrific death, a lament for the end of her family's line and her own life, is yet a belief that God would save his people through the bearing of a child. Her tears are one of deep sorrow, but behind them are also tears of faith. There is another woman in Scripture, in John chapter 20, who is weeping. She's standing at the door of death, if you will, looking in to where a tragic result that you would all expect to be, where a sacrificial body had lain. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb. 
And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. There was Mary, looking through death's door. Yet this time, there was no death on the other side of that door. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Here we have the hope, the expectation of the tears of the daughter of Jephthah, that God would send a deliverer, a savior to the people of Israel. And this Mary is witnessing that tragic story being overturned. Here was life for his people, life being given. But it's more than that. It is a vindication. It is a vindication for Jephthah's daughter. It is vindication and for all the women and men here today who have suffered injustice at the hands of people who have oppressed them unrighteously and wrongly. That for those who have faith in Christ, we have in him not only our salvation, but our vindication. That not only has God passed over our sins, but he will bring to justice all the sins of this world. That is what Jesus Christ is a sign to us of, not just of life to us, but that God indeed does judge wickedness and has handed over all judgment to the Son. But there is one last thing of God being the judge. He's the judge of Jephthah. Jephthah was judged for his foolish vow. But that is not the final word of Jephthah in all of Scripture. If you know Hebrews chapter 11, Jephthah is listed in the, what we know as hall of faith. He is one who is held up as one who testifies to faith in God. And what more shall I say? For time will fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight. But he was a man who looked in faith ultimately to God to give him the victory. Now he took matters into his own hands ultimately with his daughter, and there is no description that is excusing this behavior of Jephthah. But Hebrews 11, a few verses later says, And all these, including Jephthah, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Jephthah did not receive his inheritance. He was looking in faith to the God who would give him his inheritance. He was looking in faith to God as he sought his inheritance in the promised land despite all the wicked ways that he sought to obtain this in his own strength, we still see a witness of Jephthah 
looking in faith to God. In Judges chapter 11, verse 27. It's hope for us that if God can save a man as wicked and as evil, doing as atrocious things as Jephthah does, he will save us too, who look in faith to our Savior Jesus Christ. God will certainly bring to justice all the sins of this world. The question is, who will pay for them? Will it be the Son of God, who was given for us the ultimate whole burnt offering, or will we suffer for them? So trust in Jesus Christ. Look in faith as even Jephthah, as his own daughter did, and you will find the hope and salvation that you need for your souls. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we do ask that you would grant us faith, Grant us the eyes to see what is unseen, the heart to believe that you have sent a Savior to us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, turn our eyes away from our own sinful hearts and away from the things of this world, that we may look upon Jesus Christ as our hope and fill our hearts with this joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.